2: Today, Jane Sleeker and I will be talking about forced adoption. Again, we are social distancing and recording remotely, hence the change in sound quality. Hi, Jane, how are you?
3: Hi, Joe. I'm not too bad. We're really getting used to this social distancing thing, aren't we?
2: Yes, reluctantly so.
3: Yeah, how are you?
2: Yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Good. And hopefully, we won't have any dogs barking in the background.
3: Hopefully, not.
2: Jane, one of the purposes of this podcast is to provide opportunities for people affected by adoption and the general public to learn about adoption-related issues and topics. And because of that, we knew that forced adoption had to be covered quite early to give the podcast some
3: perspective.
2: Why is forced adoption such a big issue in the
3: Australian context? Joe, forced adoption is a term that I would say has only really become a part of our awareness over the last 10 or so years, maybe. Mm -hmm. When I first became involved in the adoption space, which was probably about 12 years ago now, I didn't hear this term being used at all. Uh, The term has emerged, I guess, as people have spoken about their experiences of adoption in Australia throughout the 20th century. We know now that many of the policies and practices that occurred in relation to adoption were unethical and in many cases illegal, even by the standards of that time when they occurred, uh, and did not leave mothers with any other choice but for their child to be adopted. Mm -hmm. We know that these practices uh, occurred in many, many countries, but Australia is the only country so far to have had an apology issued by the federal government that occurred on the 21st of March 2013. Before we get into our discussion further today, do you think we should maybe clarify the differences between forced adoption and some other groups that exist, like the Stolen Generations and Forgotten Australians?
2: Yeah, absolutely, because that is something that comes up quite a lot in conversations I have with people. They get them quite mixed up, yeah.
3: Yeah, they absolutely do. I've noticed that people uh, often, when I mention I work for the Forced Adoption Support Service, actually probably the majority of people don't know what this relates to and they assume that I'm actually maybe talking about the Stolen Generation. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So, well, the Stolen Generation, that refers to Indigenous Australians who were forcibly removed from their families, community and culture Due to government policies and laws throughout the 1900s until at least 1970. There was an apology issued to this group of people by Kevin Rudd on the 13th of February 2008. Um, and there are specific support services that assist those individuals, uh, such as in Queensland we have an organisation called Link Up. Yep. Yep. Uh, Forgotten Australians, on the other hand, are those individuals who grew up in out-of-home care. So that may have been in an institution or in foster care. Um, That includes institutions like orphanages and children's homes. Many of these people have reported experiencing various forms of mistreatment, such as neglect, cruelty and exploitation while in the system. And they also received an apology. That one was on the 16th of November 2009, also by Kevin Rudd. Um, So that apology also addressed former child migrants who are another group. uh, That refers to children sent from Britain to Australia through organised schemes. Um, and they also reported various forms of mistreatment upon their arrival in Australia. So on the 24th of February 2010, the British Prime Minister at the time, Gordon Brown, also issued an apology to those former child migrants because they were sent from Britain. Um, so those groups are supported by various support services as well. Uh, one of those, for example, is MICA Projects here in Queensland. Absolutely. And what yeah. about forced adoption? Forced adoption, on the other hand, relates to adoptions that took place due to a range of policies and practices that led mothers to feel pressured, coerced, or even directly forced to have their parental rights to their children permanently severed, and those children being placed with adoptive parents, often being issued new names and new birth certificates, and their legal status changed to as though they were born to their adoptive parents.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, in addition, adoption records were to remain closed forever at the time that um, that occurred. So the, the idea at the time was that those children would never know where they came from, and this only changed later on with lobbying and advocacy by individuals affected. Um, in Queensland, the first move towards open records occurred in 1990 to 91 when the legislation changed. So, Joe, for me, being born in 1987, even I was born under what is now known as the closed adoption era. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Of course, some of these issues overlap. We meet people who are forgotten Australians or former child migrants who were later adopted by families. And of mm-hmm. course, some members of the stolen generation were, in fact, adopted after being removed from their families of origin. Yeah, so do you think before we go on, just to bring it back to that issue of forced adoption, should we maybe listen to a little bit of the forced adoption apology that took place on the 30, the 21st of March 2013? Yeah, that'd be great. Let's do that.
0: In just over an hour's time, the following words of apology will be moved in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. Today, this parliament, on behalf of the Australian people, takes responsibility and apologises for the policies and practices that forced the separation of mothers from their babies, which created a lifelong legacy of pain and suffering. We acknowledge the profound effects of these policies and practices on fathers. And we recognise the hurt these actions cause to brothers and sisters, grandparents, partners and extended family members. We deplore the shameful practices that denied you, the mothers, your fundamental rights and responsibilities to love and care for your children. You were not legally or socially acknowledged as their mothers and you were yourselves deprived of care and support. To you, the mothers who were betrayed by a system that gave you no choice and subjected you to manipulation, mistreatment and malpractice, we apologise. We say sorry to you, the mothers who were denied knowledge of your rights, which meant you could not provide informed consent. You were given false assurances. You were forced to endure the coercion and brutality of practices that were unethical, dishonest, and in many cases, illegal. So,
2: um, so that was a little excerpt from the forced adoption apology. Um, it's making me think, like, although it would be hard to pin down any one reason, mm-hmm. I know that when you read the Senate inquiry report, you came across an interesting explanation for the slippery slope, I guess, that led to forced mm-hmm. adoption. Can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah, I was, you know, I've been very familiar for quite a long time now about the practices that actually occurred during the era of forced adoption, Mm -hmm. but when I was thinking about us doing this episode, I realised that I didn't really know why we had this peak of adoption in the 50s to the 70s and, and why the numbers rose during the 50s. Uh, so when I actually had a look at the Senate inquiry, I was quite interested and surprised by what I read. Um, as with any social issue, policies and practices don't occur in a vacuum; they occur yeah. within yeah broader social context. Yeah. Um, in this case, they mentioned that during World War II, which obviously ended in 1945 we saw some absolutely horrendous crimes being committed. Um, the actions taken in Nazi Germany, for instance, were largely based on beliefs surrounding eugenics, where they perceived that some races of people were superior to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, I guess, stemmed from the belief that who we are as people is largely based on our biology, that that's what they thought at that time. Yeah. Um, and I guess... This is related to other social commentary we hear where earlier in the 1900s it was actually considered that children whose parents might have come, become pregnant out of wedlock who or who were poor came from bad blood. Yeah. So, you know, while I'm sure there have always been couples who couldn't become pregnant and might have wanted children, uh, there wasn't such a rush to adopt as we saw later on, and and yes. those that did adopt were often seen as doing it as an act of charity. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting for us being adopted people. Yes, it is. We're charitable. <laughs> yes, the object yeah. of charity. Yes. I <laughs> know. Oh, I'd like to think I brought a lot of joy to my parents, but anyway. <laughs> um, I guess after the war, we saw things swing the other other way, and I think that's what sometimes happens. Things swing one way to another. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, people were keen to acknowledge that environment is actually very important in determining who we grow up to be. So there are a lot of children who had been orphaned or displaced during the war. And Anna Freud, who is actually Freud's daughter, uh, set up the Hampstead War Nursery in London. And she began observing how these children formed affectional bonds, they were referred to as, with other people in the absence of their parents. Um, Mm -hmm. And then psychologist John Bowlby, who actually worked right around the corner from Anna Freud's house, I've visited some of these sites in London, yeah. um, he developed attachment theory, which has actually become very widely utilised in psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he developed this theory further and published his belief that if children were going to be separated from their parents, it would be best to do this as early in life as possible, as early after birth, and he said that as long as they were adopted before the age of 6 months there would be no psychological effect oh i just got to stop oh, you. yeah <laughs> can Please you just do. say
2: that again oh,
3: just as say long as, again yeah as long as children were adopted before the age of 6 months old there will be no psychological impact on their attachment it should be minimal anyway ah. That yeah. actually
2: made me feel a little sick. So, we can blame Bolby and Freud, the Freud yeah. family, for this.
3: Yeah. Yes. And it's such a shame because yeah. they're actually responsible for a lot of great work. And I was yeah. shocked. I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> this is not what I thought <laughs> at all. Yeah. I'm um, throwing away my Freud doll now. I'm not used to doing that. <laughs> um, I remember, right. Joe, when I was studying psychology, so mm-hmm. this was about 2007, I sat there in a lecture. And I heard the lecturer say this, that statement that I just said, and I just felt anger. I just felt In like 2007. there is. In 2007? Seven, yeah, yeah. Wow. I just thought that is not true. It's really not true. And that was quite, and I went on, I spoke, I, I remember I marched up to the office of the head of school and I said, how can you teach this? And that kind of led me into that um, That idea that I wanted to do my honours thesis, looking at, you know, does the attachment of adopted people differ? Yes, yeah. You know, is it impacted even if the adoption happens very early? Um, And now there are loads of studies um, that show otherwise, that show that babies do recognise their mother after birth. They can show that in various ways. And not to mention how the mother and the father and the other family members are impacted when you s- permanently sever that relationship and that legal relationship. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: Wow. I was going to say the the bad old days, but it's really not that long ago mm-hmm. that they were still it's teaching not. this. So in no. that clean break theory and the blank slate. so exactly right. And I think, yeah, yeah that's exactly right. So, um, so... Why then did we start to see a decline in the number of adoptions later
3: in the 20th century? I suppose that uh, what happened, Joe, was again social changes. So, Gough Whitlam, who was the Prime Minister from 72 to 75, I think, uh, and his government introduced a range of things for the first time. Lots mm. of things, um, it's hard to believe it all sort of happened in that period. The single mother's benefit was brought in uh, they funded women's health centers and family planning yeah they established a pharmaceutical benefit scheme which made oral yeah. contraceptives more accessible
2: mm-hmm.
3: they abolished sales tax on contraceptives uh, then you know equal wages for equal work and maternity leave became you know recognized i'm loving um, Goff just me too. Me too. Go golf. <laughs> I just can't even believe that this was, you know, not that long before I was born. And it's just, I'm quite yeah, it's the it year.
2: it's the year after I was born because right. I think there was peak adoptions in the year I was born
3: and then the decline yeah. started to happen. Started so happening. Yep, yeah. exactly. Um, so I guess the bottom line was that women just had more choices and in yeah. this case, you know, of adoption, mothers had more choices Um, this ties into what we know about forced adoption because the themes we hear from mothers is that they felt they had no choice. Um, As much as they may have wanted to keep their babies, it would not have been possible, really, for them to do so unless they had some support. And if that support wasn't coming from government payments, it would have had to come from the father or from their family or their parents. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I guess the amount of force applied varied, but that overarching theme is you can't dispute it. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's why we talk about force as really meaning did not have another choice or did not think they had another choice. Um, even after some of these government supports came into force uh, in the in the seventies. By the mid, by the late seventies, anyway, mothers whose babies were adopted later um, didn't weren't always made aware that these supports existed because, you know, as with lots of things, things take time to catch up. Um, yeah, social workers and anyone involved families and mothers themselves they you don't always know what options are available what payments are available to you things like that no and the stigma still sort of carried on like there's a bit of a hangover of that as you went into the 80s you know and so I think it's not all about that it's also that huge theme we hear about stigma and judgment that women experience becoming pregnant out of wedlock Um, And that judgment often came at them from every direction, their parents, extended family, medical staff, religious institutions, even internalised religious beliefs um, for those who had those beliefs, and broader society. Um, People were made to feel that authority figures knew what was best, Um, so not only felt uninformed about their options, but disempowered and often bullied to go down the path of adoption. Yeah. Um, we hear from mothers and even fathers who were told, if you love your baby, you will let them be raised in a two-parent family,
2: <sighs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> which I guess <laughs> meant a married couple. Um, yeah. um, one mother actually in the Senate report, she says that she was told that there are many deserving married couples who are unable to have their own child and that you should give your baby a proper family.
2: Oh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair bit of judgment and, um,
3: yeah, it's incredible. It's so sad. It is, yeah. It's very different to the context we live in now. So it's hard sometimes for people to wrap their head around the fact that it was very different.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah. So these policies and practices were, of course, not known as forced adoption at the time they occurred. It was just adoption and a super Mm. good thing. Um, So that term is a fairly recent way of referring to them. How is it that we come to know so much about what we now call the forced adoption era now?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, there have been a number of peer groups and advocacy groups that, you know, have stemmed from people directly affected coming together, sharing their experiences, and then going to talk to other people, going to talk to, you know, local members of parliament, members of government departments senior staff members at hospitals and churches to talk about what happened to them and, and these people mm-hmm. wanting some kind of justice which you know might be in the form of an apology we
2: owe a lot to these people
3: we really do we really yeah. people that you know are willing to put themselves on the line and speak up and yeah, fight on keep their fighting. shoulders
2: we stand yeah
3: yep, that's, that's exactly right so true and so for example in Queensland, uh, the Royal Brisbane Hospital was the first hospital that we know of to issue an apology in Australia. For that was passports. my hospital. That was my was hospital born. too, but in a diff- slightly different name Snap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um yeah, absolutely. So that apology from that hospital occurred in 2009. Um and and It wasn't just that they gave an apology, they did a study and that was titled Confinement and Delivery Practices in Relation to Single Women Confined at the Royal Women's Hospital, which it was was called, from 45 to 75. Mm -hmm. And these research, the findings they found were that unmarried mothers were often denied access to newborn babies, they were denied information on options, they were treated in different wards to married women. Yeah. They were forced to endure longer labours without being given the option of caesarean section and that they were routinely referred to social workers to raise the topic of adoption with these mothers, even if the mother had expressed, you know, no interest in that idea. Wow. Yeah. Um, we've also had some religious institutions around Australia issue apologies Mm-hmm. Even some of them have uh, been providing redress to individuals that were in their care at the time. Uh, for example, in 2012, Brisbane's Anglican Archbishop Philip Aspinall issued an apology for past adoption practices. He, In his apology, he said he was sorry for the hurt, harm and distress that resulted by mothers probably and fathers not always having provided the care to these people not having provided the information and not having provided the support that they should have received under their care so this mm-hmm. pertains to places a lot of mothers were sent to sent away to hide their pregnancy and sent to maternity homes so yeah one example of that is St Mary's Mothers Home which is in Toowong here in Brisbane yeah yeah so after all of well as all that was happening a lot, a lot of things sort of happened simultaneously In 2010, the Australian government um, decided they were going to have a Senate inquiry into former forced adoption policies and practices, and that report was finalised and published in 2012, and it outlined that across Australia this was a common experience that came to be known as forced adoption, and then they issued a number of recommendations from that. Right.
2: Yeah. So... um The forced adoption practices in Australia were quite a wide spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about this, what the opposite ends were and sort of what was in between, I guess? Yeah, definitely.
3: Uh, So in that report, they detailed a number of different ways in which forced adoption occurred. So these range from things like mothers being shackled to beds, mothers being told their babies had died, (sighs) Big sigh. <laughs> it's a
2: deep breath in between these. It's yeah.
3: Hard to to. And look, yeah, some on. of these, some people who are listening to this might have watched the, the TV show Love Child. Um, yes, yeah. And these things we saw in that show, and, and they actually based that show very heavily on the Senate report. Yeah. So Yeah. So being told babies had died, uh, being told to sign documents while still under the influence of drugs, you know, after mm-hmm. they've just given birth. Wow. Yeah. Uh, social workers just you know to a lesser level but equally um as as sort of dire for some women social workers speaking to them in a really aggressive manner not advising them of government payments as we mentioned and basically just anything that led them to believe there was no choice but to have their babies adopted yeah yeah um wow i know in some cases Uh, Mothers have actually stated that they did have the support of their own parents to take their baby home, but still had social workers saying to them that they had no rights to their baby. Um, One mother said that her own parents wanted to support her, but weren't the kind of people to question authority. And she basically said, if you didn't have a lawyer, you you didn't often know what your rights were. And I
2: think that um that's something really important that you say because i know um my mother is like 87 so mm-hmm. um she still defers to doctors like they're gods so if they some yeah, say something yeah. you know those authority figures that's the way it has to be done that's the way and it that's is. yep that was an attitude that was rife at that um yes. that time like you didn't question yeah. these things don't
3: question yep yeah definitely um also joe when mm-hmm. an adoption paper was signed the law was and definitely in queensland but i'm you know fairly confident this would have been australia-wide that there was a 30-day revocation period it was called and that is Mm -hmm. where mothers could still change their mind and could still say i want to i want my baby to come back into my care now the majority of mothers have said they don't remember ever being informed of that and that even for those who did know about it and who contacted the social worker and said i would like my baby back they were told various things one of the things they were told is nope your baby's already been adopted it's too late and that was illegal you know that was yeah. illegal for that to happen
2: yeah completely illegal
3: completely illegal yeah
2: that's right oh wow so um so what were
3: the outcomes of the senate inquiry there were a range of things so there were recommendations made and one of those was for the commonwealth government to issue a formal statement of apology so as we know that happened on the 21st of march 2013. Uh, in addition they recommended for all state and territory governments to also apologize and that's because adoption's always been a state-based thing uh, governed by the states so some states had actually already issued an apology. Western Australia was the first one on the 19th of October 2010. Uh, but a lot of the apologies occurred during 2012. So, for example, Queensland's apology was the 29th of November 2012.
2: Yeah. And um, that's yeah. one of the reasons we use that little grab from um, Julia Gillard's apology yep. at the
3: beginning of every episode because exactly.
2: a lot of people aren't even aware that it happened or have never that's sat down right. and listened to it. So That's right. Yeah.
3: And there's one reason for that that I know we're going to mention a little bit later, (laughs) why people maybe haven't heard about it. Um, But for now, I guess, you know, there were some other recommendations that I want to mention. So Mm -hmm. um, they recommended for specialist professional support to be available uh, specific to the needs of this group. So as we know, we've had the formation of the Forced Adoption Support Service. Uh, The funding's continued to this day. And uh, we're funded until June 2021 at this point. Next year, so yeah. fingers crossed, it will keep going after that. So on the day of the apology, the Gillard government also committed some funds, um, and that was not only for support services, but also they they realised there needed to be some training for for other mental health professionals because a lot of people go and see psychologists or social workers or counsellors in private practice who often are not informed about these issues so from that the Australian Psychological Society established some online training and that's uh, still available now. Uh, The Gillard government also announced some funding for the National Archives of Australia to develop an exhibition to tour Australia and that was to include artifacts associated with this period of Australia's history and information pertaining to the period. So that has toured now, and lots of people got to see it. And um, I it got was, to see it. It was brilliant. Yay. Yeah, it, it was really well done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is still a website relating to that, so we might be able to include that in some of our podcast notes for people, maybe. Sure can. Um, there was also, after the apology, a wide-scale study developed, well led by the Australian Institute of Family Studies. Uh, it surveyed over 800 adoptees and 500 mothers, and it looked at not only their experiences of adoption but how that has impacted their future psychological well-being. So that's yeah. a really interesting piece that you know we don't have time to discuss today, but we will get <laughs> that's to, that another before, to another episode. Another <laughs> episode. Lots of episodes. <laughs> Um, There were some other recommendations, Jo, that um, haven't necessarily been addressed yet um, and things that have been that I haven't mentioned. Um, One of the key things was to make all adoption information information available and open and that has largely been achieved. So that's fantastic. Um, But some of the things um, people are still fighting for and hoping will come, that um, were recommended are uh, financial reparation schemes um, so mm-hmm. discussion about how this could work is still ongoing yeah um, the idea of integrated birth certificates which is something that I personally would love to see happen it would Same enable, here. yeah yeah it would enable adopted people to have a document that says these are the parents you know that you were born to and these are the people that adopted you and for that to be, you know, recognised and all on one piece of paper, so.
2: And so good for if you're doing, I've been doing some ancestry work. Yeah. yep. You know, it's such a disconnect when somebody's been adopted on those mm. sites, whereas an exactly. integrated birth certificate could make that all clear.
3: That's right. Um, I guess some of the difficulty where there's still, and different states, some states are really making a lot of progress on this and others um, still in the early stages. One of the issues is they want adoptees to have the choice that, say, if I go to the post office and I want to get something done with my passport, Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily need that worker to know everything about my history. So trying to negotiate a balance between the truth and maybe having two options so that yeah. you don't have to divulge that to everyone, but we'll see how that That's goes. That's a good point. A really good <laughs> it point. It is. Yeah. yeah. So lots of discussion. There's, sometimes there's not easy answers to these things. Yeah. But we keep working on it anyway.
2: I was just going to say about um, birth, death, and marriage registers around Australia facilitating yes. Search and reunion.
3: Yeah. One of the issues, and you know, I'm sure this comes up all the time, is Again, birth, deaths and marriages are a state-based function. So Mm. if someone was born in, say, New South Wales and then has moved up to Queensland and then their their mother that gave birth to them is now in Western Australia and she's married in Western Australia, that can hold up a lot of searches because you basically have to then try, oh, she wasn't married in the state, you know, I was born in, now I've got to try every state and pay money to search in every state so which is really
2: triggering for people it
3: is it is it's that thing again of feeling like oh other people have the information and I don't and yeah I I didn't have any choice in this but I've got to you know go to all this effort and um
2: yeah
3: feel like maybe yeah so lots of things we're still working on and I probably haven't covered all of them but that's okay
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's all right that was a lot well done yeah um So, in relation to the apology, one of the things that we do in Queensland every year, even this year with COVID 19 crashing our party, yeah. is that we commemorate the federal and state forced adoption apologies with an event. And it often includes a ceremony, a morning tea, and sometimes even an exhibition with contributions by people who are affected. Mm-hmm. So on a personal note, when the apologies first happened, I didn't think they pertained to my own adoption experience because when I met my mother in 1991, Mm -hmm. she told me that even though she was coerced and had no support from her family or my father or the government, she didn't consider me a forced adoption because the worst practices of that time weren't part of her story. But later Mm -hmm. on, I attended an anniversary event. So a few years Mm -hmm. later after the apology, and I came to realize that those experiences were at the heart of the forced adoption era, which Mm. she, you know, she had no alternative. She she had to adopt me out. There was just no alternative. So um, I think the anniversaries, from my perspective, are very important for that reason, because not everyone comes to this understanding at the time that the apologies are given. Mm. So what are your thoughts about that?
3: Yeah, I think this, that's a really great point. I think there's a lot of people uh, like you who are still now coming to apology events for the first time, becoming familiar for the first time with the language around forced adoption, what it means and how it relates to their experience. Um, and I think that's true for adoptees, mothers, fathers and other family members as well. Yeah. Um, so the anniversary events provide an opportunity to keep the conversation going, um, as well as to commemorate how forced adoption has impacted people's lives, and I think also to celebrate the fact that our government has actually taken responsibility and said they're sorry for some of these yeah. practices, which is yeah, not something we always see, and it's really great. Yeah, it is. Um. So over the years, we've been lucky really to have some wonderful guest speakers at these events um here in queensland Uh, one year we had name Mushin; he was directly involved in actually drafting the wording of the apology yeah Uh, we've had daryl higgins he was involved in the australian institute of family studies research that i mentioned a little while ago uh we had evelyn robinson Now, she's a mother who lost her child to adoption, who went on to become a social worker and who has written widely about adoption. Yeah. Uh, We've also had some wonderful exhibitions over the years. So we we sort of sometimes have little displays people can look at as they walk in um, that people affected by forced adoption can directly contribute to. So one year we had some amazing art there um, another They're year beautiful so amazing yeah. <laughs> it should be in galleries some of them um, one year we we encouraged people to bring along objects that were special to them uh, so yeah. for example I brought along a really lovely statue that my mother had given me the first Christmas um, we spent together in 2005 yeah um, another year we had some movie posters up and people had uh, done write-ups of, you know, how those works had impacted them. This year we had some song lyrics on display. Um, so for the fifth anniversary of the adopt- uh, Adoption Apology, yeah, in 2018, we wanted to do something quite special. Um, we decided, we thought, who do we want as a guest speaker this year? Um, maybe we can get Julia Gillard herself. Um Knowing that. Shooting high, Jane. Shooting high, (laughs) as
2: always.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Always got to shoot high, even if it's not (laughs) going to happen. You got to try. You got to try. And, you know, she wasn't available. So we said, well, how about a video message? Um, And straight away, she got back to us saying that she'd be very happy to do that. Uh, So. Um, Julia's office is in Adelaide these days so we decided we'd work with the forced adoption support service in South Australia who we often work closely with they're fantastic um, and we we well we approached Julia and then we you know thought about what we'd like her to address and wrote some questions so I was very excited Joe, to be able to go down to Adelaide. I remember. Um, <laughs> I remember. Do you remember? <laughs> I do remember your excitement. It was a very good time, Joe. And I I went to visit Nikki, first of all. She's the manager of the Forced Adoption Support Service in South Australia. Um, We had a great discussion and then off we went to Julia's office with some of their media team down there. And, um, you know, we just walked into Julia's office. She was very lovely and sort of handed over the questions. She glanced at this sheet of paper with these questions I'd written and she read them, just went, yep. I'm good <laughs> um looked That's at incredible. that camera yeah, yeah and just spoke and for me I just sort of realized this is a very this is something she's very genuine about and I think it's very heartfelt you know I feel like she actually does understand this issue and actually does care that it's impacting yeah. people because of the way you know because of how that process unfolded Joe, how about we listen to a little bit of what Julia told us about what it meant to her personally being involved in the apology? I think right. uh, before we do that, it's important to acknowledge that the day she gave the apology in the Great Hall of Parliament House, she actually knew that later that day there was a leadership challenge about to happen. So yeah. just a, a, yeah, a huge day. Excellent. Let's have a listen.
0: Yes, Prime Minister, I had the great honour of delivering the apology, but the apology only came about because people had the courage to tell their stories and to demand change. And in particular, to have their hurt acknowledged, acknowledged by the Australian Government and by the Australian community. So really, the voices, the courage of individuals that led to the apology on that day need to be recognised. And I know that people are still continuing to show incredible courage on their own journeys of healing, but also advocacy for services and supports that are necessary, and also advocacy to make sure that we never forget this history. I want to acknowledge every individual who is still raising their voice, and thank you for doing so.
2: It was really an extraordinary day, Jane, and I recall thinking how disappointed I was that the leadership challenge occurred on the same Mm -hmm. day as the apology, and it took away from the attention that it deserved. Yeah. But when you were watching Julia deliver the apology, you would have no inkling of what was going on in the background of that day. She really gave it her entire focus.
3: She gave it her all, and it's just been, you know, really sad on everyone else, people that have fought for so many years for change felt that it didn't really gather any media attention because that was you know overshadowed by the leadership challenge so I don't know do you think as a way of summarizing we've talked about lots of things do you think maybe we could just hear a little bit more from that video message about what she saw as some of the key messages in the apology that she delivered
2: yeah that's great let's listen
0: With forced adoptions, I think we learned some lessons that we all needed to understand. We learned some things about informed consent. We learned about the depths of the bonds between a mother and her child and between a father and his child. Uh, We learned that when we try and not tell people the truth about where they've come from, that that can cause hurt and dislocation for decades. And we learned too that when something wrong happens, it's not just an individual who suffers, that pain and hurt flows through whole families and whole communities. We also learned some things about the power of identity and knowing where you came from. And I hope that we continue to keep those lessons at the forefront of our minds.
2: She really did understand the issues and have a great deal of compassion for people who are affected by these policies. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane, just as we finish up, do you have any final thoughts or things
3: that you think people should know? I guess we've co- yeah we've covered a lot of ground I think today. Um, just a bit. Just a bit, yeah. So I guess what I would add is that forced adoption is a pretty core issue here in Australia and probably around the world as well that's gaining more attention in other countries now as well. Um, But, you know, there are other aspects of adoption that we will cover as the series continues and there might be people listening to this that sort of think, well, I wasn't adopted in that peak era. Um, But as we said before, sometimes things take a while to catch up. So there will be people that have been adopted still under the closed adoption system that might actually resonate with a lot of these themes. Um, And there might actually be some adoptees and and parents that were involved in inter-country adoption who might actually also resonate with some of these themes because I guess even when um, babies are adopted from overseas, what's changed in Australia now because we have more supports in place, some other countries... um, I'm just thinking Asia as one example, there are people living in poverty that are still feeling that they have no choice and that their babies, you know, need to be adopted. Yeah. So absolutely. I think some of these issues, you know, carry over into some of those other things um, and and those are things that I guess we're going to have to have other episodes about. <laughs> we'll continue the conversation. Yeah, that's right. So absolutely. We'll say, yeah, Well carry that over um for future discussion but yeah forced adoption is very important um and it's it's kind of informed where we've come since then and what's still happening now yeah you can't really talk
2: about adoption in australia without talking about forced adoption exactly and we'll we'll link a um post a link to julia gillard's full anniversary video message for people to watch on the podcast page as well as some other relevant links yeah sounds um, great. I want to remind people that help is available now and they can find information and contact details on the Jigsaw website. So thank you so much for talking through forced adoption with me today, Jane, and um, Thanks, we'll bring jo. this episode to a
3: close and talk yeah. again soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www. Jigsaw and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll free 1 800 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 33 58 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.